Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of the... Now. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery Edition of our broadcast. If you missed any part of this broadcast, past, present, or in the future, you can always find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Type in Discovery Edition, otherwise it might not come up. I am Michael Flores, your host, and I am sitting in the captain's seat on the bridge, and at the helm is David Sabal. Hello, David. Hello. It is very a very logical day today. Is it? Is it logical today? <laughs> I feel like it's a more sexy day. Thanks to us having such a great episode of Star Trek Discovery. Dude, it was really good. I was I was definitely impressed, not going to lie. Now, today we are going to be breaking down Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Episode 3, Context is for Kings. And I have to say, the utilization of that title at the tail end of this week's episode was effing amazing. It was. Jason Isaacs is everything I wanted him to be in this show. Uh, that's the one thing I've been worried about uh, is was actually I was thinking to myself, how good is Jason Isaacs, Captain Lorcan going to be? Hey, simmer down. It's Jason Isaacs. It's Jason Isaacs. But his <laughs> captain compared to the other captains, because that's yeah. a big thing in Star Trek is everyone compares all the captains. Absolutely. You're right. It's it, There is a an expectation that comes with that captain's chair. And if you notice, Captain Lorca didn't even sit in the chair. Which oh. they're immediately trying to show that he's very different. He's not as obsessive about that captaincy, which is kind of the uh, charming element of particularly Captain Kirk. It's that obsession, that need to sit in that chair, the need to take control. And I think that was a very subtle way to show a very big difference between him and the other captains. Oh, he's a hugely different captain. He likes to stay in his little dark areas. I mean, even the justification of the eyes, which worked, I felt. Obviously, that's the that's the actual reason. But also, it was a justified reason to keep his character symbolically or metaphorically in the shadows. Because he's definitely the mysterious element at this point of the series. Like, what his true intentions are. What he's trying to do. So, I love how they played with all of that. Now... This week's episode was directed by Akiva Goldsman and written by Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts, which are the two co-showrunners of Star Trek Discovery. They are the two protégés, I guess you can call them, of Brian Fuller. He left them in charge. He left Discovery in their careful hands. And so far, they've done a great job realizing Brian Fuller's vision of Star Trek Discovery. Also written by Craig Sweeney. He's also on board the writing team as well. So this took three writers. I usually am not a fan of that, but hey, it definitely was a very intricate plot layered episode. So this, 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 the whole story in this episode was really heavy, very heavy. heavy. It was, it was like very, I could definitely tell that for the rest of the season, we're going to be, I'm going to be expecting really heavy storytelling. 
This episode took me three and a half to four hours to do the show notes this week. And that's just because of all the intricacies of this week's episode. And I'm not just talking about the writing, but the various subtle elements that they're throwing in there, the Roddenberry-esque part of Star Trek that they're, they are sprinkling in there. And of course, the true Easter eggs, which we're going to get to that in a moment. Um, this week's episode gave us a glimpse, David, of what to expect in season one. Episodes one and two served as a bit of a hybrid prologue of sorts. And with the premiere of episode three, we get a a very distinct direction for the show. Uh, The prologue served as a way to explore our lead. It revealed her baggage, her struggles. But this episode set the groundwork for the season. Uh, I believe, as we discussed in last week's episode, that Michael Burnham, is in fact the gimmick. She's the hook. He's the she, hook. she is the eyes of the audience through her character. We will learn about this new mysterious world that takes place within the USS Discovery. However, showrunner Aaron Herbert stated uh, in a recent discussion on Trek's official wrap-up show after Trek that the prologue, episodes one and two, or I'm sorry, that episodes one and two were officially considered a prologue in the writing room. When all the writers got together and they were trying to figure out ways to flesh out Lieutenant Commander Michael Burnham and the show and really get the show started, they 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 threw around a bunch of ideas, according to this discussion and follow up interviews as to how they're going to get this story started. And rather than showing flashbacks, they decided to give us that 90 minute prologue that also served as the pilot of the show. That's the reason why we don't really quite see the crew of the Discovery yet. We don't even see the USS Discovery or Captain Lorca. However, we do get the the, the character development and the jumpstart to our main lead, Michael Burnham. And I actually appreciate that idea, especially in a time right now where writers on TV are flashback happy. They are flashback happy. And that's something that you and I discuss and I discuss on almost every show that I do on this network where we discuss where we discuss television and movies. It's like the fine art of of flashbacks no longer exist. It has become a writing crutch. Yes. Meaning there are so many TV shows out there that can no longer tell a linear story. In order to justify a character motives, character motives or a plot reasoning. Oh, well, you know what? Let's flash back, you know, 30 seconds earlier or 30 days earlier or 30 years early. Nobody can tell a story forward anymore. It's become a horrible writing crutch. It has. It has. I mean, like, I'm with you. I I really have gotten to really dislike times in TV shows where they have to do flashbacks. Yeah. Because it's kind of like, well, if you didn't tell us that in the first place, why is it important now? Yeah. And nobody can seem to tell a story anymore linearly. It's like, well, what did no. you guys do all those years before with all those great st- stories that were developed? You know, the characters that were great, beloved characters on various TV shows. You managed to tell these stories without flashbacks. I do blame Lost for doing this. I am one of those fans of Lost. I feel like they did a great job with the show. And I feel like at the time they utilized flashbacks during a time, I should say, when it was not being used. But they are the ones who started the trend. The show was built around flashbacks. So it worked 
for their show. But now everybody now figures, hey, we're going to do a flashback sequence every episode or every other episode to explain why this character acts this way. And that is ultimately a great, I mean, kudos to Gretchen Berg, Aaron Herberts for not wanting to use that writing crutch that has, you know, become a bane on television and said, hey, let's do a prologue where we see for the most part her past. We understand where she's at rather than starting off in a shuttle transport off to prison like episode three started and then explaining why she got there. Let's just do it in the 90 in the first 90 minutes. And I think ultimately that was a very good decision. Yes, it was. It was because it made it, it it honestly set us up as the audience. So we didn't have to, it made it easier for us to kind of ingest the story as a, as an audience in episode three, because there is so much mystery right. in this episode. Absolutely. Like, every single time I'm like, going, okay, what the hell is that? Yeah. What what's going on? Yeah, imagine if they also threw flashbacks of her character in there. It would make it so confusing. It would have been a cluttered, idiotic mess. So I'm not saying now. Harberts did not say he's not going to be using flashbacks. So I'm sure they may have flashbacks from time to time throughout the run of the first season, which would make sense because I'm sure we're going to explore her relationship, Burnham's relationship with Sarek. Um, as we heard, she even officially revealed. Her connection to the Spock family. Yeah. Uh, yep. I think we can all assume that is definitely Amanda Grayson, Spock's mother. So we I think we're going to see those flashbacks, but they're going to use be used sparingly as we've seen so far. And, and I, I really I, that was one of the moments. I guess you could clarify that uh, classify that as like an Easter egg. Yeah, that was one of the Easter egg moments I really enjoyed because it really it harkened back to the old mythos. We all knew that basically we were always wondering, okay, when is this in Sarek's life? Well, the fact that she actually mentions that she grew, she was, she was uh, raised by Sarek. And at that time, the uh, foster mother, which was Amanda, right. That made complete sense. Yeah. So that does mean that she does have a connection to Spock in some way. Right. And we're going to get into all of that after our first break, when we break down the ins and outs of the episode, um, but I, I do want to say, Dave, before we move into break, we have a couple things we want to get through. Um, I do want to say that so far the writing strategy for this series has been on point. Yeah. Uh, forgetting some of the controversy surrounding this series due to some of the, you know, some truck Trek fans uh, their, and their own ideas of what Trek should be. Rules. Um, the writing is strong. I'm not saying Trek fans aren't correct. I mean, we all as fans, we all have things and elements that we want to see it doesn't mean it should be in there there's a reason why there's writers they they yeah. understand the delicate nature of writing and crafting an entire story and unfortunately you can't always have those fan service moments and I, I think for the most part they actually kind of balanced the fan service elements which was quite a bit in this episode uh with with uh, good writing as well yeah I mean, I think the commitment to preserve Star Trek is within the core fibers of this new series. You have a room full of Trek fans, including Star Trek novelist uh, Kirsten Beyer. Uh, their commitment comes in the form of causation or cause and effect. Anytime there's a questioning of why would this happen in Trek, for example, throwing away the, the, main, the main rule of Gene Roddenberry, where Star Trek crew, crew members don't fight. We saw that in the very beginning of the first 90 minutes, the pilot or the prologue. Uh, but there's a cause 
for the effect. As I said, take, for example, the mutineer actions of Burnham. Her logic, her logic deemed it necessary to take action. That was the cause and effect. And effect. This is the more simple of examples, and we will get into more after our first break. Um, but that's what they're doing in the show. If you really go over with a fine-tooth comb, they are throwing away some of the things that you would consider classic Trek. But there's a reason for it. There's, there's, a, a, reason. there's a cause yes. and effect. And one of the most brilliant excuses so far is Burnham being raised by Vulcans and having that chaotic common sense of what type, what direction do I go? Am I human? Do I make human decisions? Do I make logical decisions like I was raised? And that's the cause and effect. That's what created the mutiny, the mutinous actions. And I like, I like the little details that they did by showing that in Burnham's character. I mean, the connection to her and the story of Alice in Wonderland I thought was brilliant. You know, everything is upside down. And she oh, goes, yes. he starts talking about how the story of Alice in Wonderland, where she goes through the, goes through the tunnels and stuff and everything else. It's very symbolic of how Burnham is as a character. Yeah. Is like, she's taught this one way to do it, but then this, this other, this way is going to lead her into a very chaotic place. Absolutely. And she has to follow it. And I, I thought doing that really helped characterize this character. And, like last time I said, it was hard for me to get behind the character of Michael Burnham. This episode, I started actually going, okay, I get where she's going now. Yeah. And throw, throw in the fact that you have this very mysterious character in Gabriel Lorcan. I loved it. Yeah. I loved I, yeah. I'm like going, okay, we don't, she's not even sure if she should trust Lorcan. You know, he, he seems like a good guy. But then again, he he's doing like all these weird things behind everyone's back, and you're like going, is he is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Was it what is he gonna be? Yeah, especially to Burnham at this point. Yeah. All right. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the episode, this week revealed some great moments and true Easter eggs for those of us elitist Trek fans. Honestly, they weren't that hard to pick out if you're a hardcore Trek fan. But they are there. And if you didn't notice them, we're going to go through them really fast. We have about five minutes before we have to go to our first break. Uh, but number one, I wouldn't really consider this an Easter egg. However, it is a nice little nugget for us truck truck fans. I, why, why do I keep calling us truck fans? Truck fans. <laughs> Trek fans. Uh, and that's Vulcan martial arts. Uh, the fighting art mentioned and used by Burnham in the episode is called Seuss. I believe that's, is that how you yes. pronounce it. Uh, Sus Mahan, and was previously demonstrated by my girlfriend and Vulcan character to <laughs> I, Paul. I knew you would bring this up just because <laughs> the, the 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 Vulcan martial arts became famous when to Paul yeah. showed it on Enterprise. Yep. He can destroy me with her martial arts, <laughs> and she utilized it as you said in in Enterprise, and the episode in particular was called Marauders. So. It's something, a little nugget, a little callback, and it's just something to show you that the writers are trying to include a little bit of all of our love, beloved shows and oh, showing yeah. us that they still do matter and that they are going to try their very best to stay true to the 50 years of Star Trek canon. And the cool thing was, was Marauders was one of the episodes for Star Trek Enterprise that really kind of was like one of those standout episodes yeah. because... 
it gave a really good background on the on the crew of Enterprise, and it kind of helped broaden the idea of what Vulcan culture is like. Absolutely, Dan. Uh, now, second Easter egg is Section 31. Now, certain members of the USS Discovery's crew are seen to be wearing black Starfleet badges in Episode 3, leading some fans, myself in particular, to speculate whether they could be a part of Starfleet's notorious black-suited Section 31. More on this, David, during our regular discussion, because yes. this warrants an entire debate. Oh, it does. It does. Because, like, Section 31 is one of those things in Star Trek that basically a lot of a lot of fans really wish they would have covered more yeah. in a lot of the Star Trek series. Because, it, But it's, it's, it's one of those things that you have to be very careful. You've got to be really careful. You have to be very it. careful because then you, you veer dangerously into an area that a lot of people don't want Trek to veer into. I'm not one of those. However, we're going to get to that. Yes. Number three is one of my favorites, and that's the Gorn skeleton. At least, <laughs> at least that's what I thought it was. No, it was. Okay. Because I that had. That was a Gorn skeleton. Okay. Because I had to Google it to make sure, and I was like, is that a Gorn skeleton? So then after the show, I ran to my computer and I Googled Gorn skeleton Star Trek Discovery, <laughs> and it popped up. I guess a lot of people saw it as well. So yeah. I, mean, I wasn't too far off. But Gabriel Lorca seems to have had more luck against a Gorn of his own in Discovery. Uh, he apparently he kept a skeleton of one of the species on his ship, despite the fact that the original episode suggested Starfleet had never come across them before. And that's the thing that I find really fascinating throughout the entire thing was when you see Lorcan's. I guess you could say it's his, it's his collection or his office, that where he keeps all like the little trophies of his. And I'm like going, his office is very different than every, every other captain, captain we've ever. seen. He has it's, it's that creepy office. <laughs> he has trophies, much like starships, all right? Yes. Okay, but his trophies are dead creatures. Dead, are dead aliens. Yeah, dead creatures. So that's kind of a, a little a nice little nugget of character development that was just very subtle. And it, it, it that that's that was the one scene that made me think, okay, maybe Lorkin's maybe Lorkin's going to be the villain of this season because like all right, you, you slow, don't down, slow down. Have slow, that. Slow down. Let's slow not, down. Yeah, we're just doing Easter eggs right now. <laughs> we have all this ready to. We're going to talk about this after our first break. Now, I don't think that's a big continuity error, though. I mean, it kind of fits. If Gabriel Lorca David is happens to be Section Thirty One, would it not make sense that he may be aware of other creatures out in the universe? That oh heck yeah, yeah. So heck yeah, I'm not upset about that continuity error. They could definitely make it work. Number four. Is the memory cards uh, when the lieutenant handed a memory card over to uh, Burnham and told her to get to work. It was exactly the exact same memory cards that were used in the original <laughs> series. Amazing. Yeah, that Loved was awesome. Uh, fifth is Alice in Wonderland and the Spock connection. Alice in Wonderland uh, was featured several times in Star Trek, uh, particularly the original series, I should say, exclusively in the original series so far. Um, but most notably in the original series, Shore Leave, and has a particular significance to one classic character, which is, in fact, Spock. Um, her line, Lieutenant Commander Burnham said, my foster mother on Vulcan used to read it to me and her son. Burnham says of the classic children's book, she and I were the only humans in the house. So she didn't say Amanda's name. However, who else could it be, especially with her connection to Sarek? It makes perfect sense. The odd part was I could have sworn she says she says her name was Amanda. Oh, maybe she did. I, I have to go back and watch it. I, I can't quite remember. Um, 
Now, Spock previously referred to it in Star Trek, the animated series as well. The 1970s uh, continuation of the original series, Cruise Adventures, in the episode called Once Upon a Planet. So this is a on an ongoing, I want to say, element to the Spock story. Yes. I love it. It just makes so much sense on so many levels. And we're also going to discuss this more in depth after our first break. The second or I'm sorry, the sixth Easter egg, the year 2155. During an argument with Captain Lorca, Burnham references the real life Geneva protocols of 1928 and also mentions another such treaty from 2155. And this choice of date is almost certainly no coincidence as depicted in Star Trek Enterprise episodes demons and terror prime this was the year that various species first discussed forming a coalition of planets that would become the federation while a human isolationist group tried to force all alien life out of the soul system as we remember in the waning years of enterprise enterprise yes. uh, presumably these new restrictions on biological weapons came as a part of those discussions that would make sense i think it's a safe assumption i pulled that part the year 2125 from a blog article. I believe it was comicbooked.com. Uh, number seven. Tribbles. <laughs> that wasn't really an Easter egg. I think everybody knows what tribbles are. Oh, yeah. However, it was subtle. It was just off to the corner. And you heard it. Yep. And it was on Captain Lorca's desk. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with the Klingons per se, which would make sense. I can't imagine Captain Lorca being you know, emotionally invested and in caring for an animal because he as a pet. However, if you remember the first time we saw Tribbles in the original series, they had a very innate, violent reaction to Klingons. Yes, they did. Now, again, is this a subtle way of showing us that Lorca is in the know? Does he understand that they have violent reactions to Klingons? And that's why he has one. To use it as some sort of weapon, to use it as a warning, whatever. But it would make sense, right? It would make sense, especially taking into context of the very ending with Lorca's fascination with keeping animal species around. Yeah. And Lorca, Lorca really does remind me of kind of like that type of character that you kind of actually wonder what his true motives are. He's like the perfect. Oh, we're going to get into that. You keep, yeah. you keep, you love Lorca. I, I love Lorca, dude. Simmer Lorca down. is awesome. All right. We need to go to a break so you can jizz all over Lorca. Okay. <laughs> we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, the entire second segment of the show is going to be pretty much dedicated to Lorca because he was the bulk of this episode for the most part. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Double dumbass on you! Fire everything! The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. The key advance raises the prospect of a fast-acting pill or nasal spray that a man could take hours or perhaps just minutes before sex. It would also save men from being trapped into having children they didn't want. Oh, of course, douche. Oh, poor men. Douche scientist right there. He's all, you know, I'm tired of these bitches. It always pregnant. I'm having sex with them. Yeah, these bitches What's get happening. <laughs> these bitches are getting pregnant, and I'm just tired of it. What if that was his entire drive through college? Tired of bitches getting pregnant. <laughs> tired of paying child support. I better get a college education. 
That ain't gangster, though. Like, there's something, like, uh, flashy about putting on a condom. You think condoms, it kind of gets everything going, ooh, sexual vibe. Like, I'm not into condoms, but when you hear about them and you have them in your pocket, it kind of spells sex. You know, it's the whole situation. (laughs) You don't think sex when someone pulls out like a nasal spray. Excuse me. I got I just want to make sure you don't get pregnant. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to put this nasal spray in my in my my right nostril. Hold on. Hold on. For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it? Well, that's exactly how we feel about you. That's right. AdamandEve.com wants you so bad. We're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order. You heard me right. That's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, an adventurous toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. What are you looking at, nerd? I thought I was looking at my mother's old douchebag, but that's in Ohio. <laughs> Geek out Saturday. But at the same time, then you wouldn't have this feeling that, okay, so Lucifer's just what? Sitting on his hands and knees? With King Shark. You're getting, I was getting, getting a, a shark, shark tattoo. tattoo. And like, what I watched the nerd. episode after. the way it ended. I mean, you end it with Ray climbing the mountain, holding out the lightsaber to Luke and Funny Luke that some of my favorite westerns are coming from the Euro countries mm-hmm. to this day directors and writers are able to bring the heat in terms of American yeah, I mean don't be wrong Mad Max was really good but they washed out a lot of it to kind of hide the special effects that they were doing yeah and that's fine catch up on your favorite Rain Man digital geek shows every Saturday DC on CW Back to Tank Weird West Radio The Crossroads and more Geek Out Saturday on Rain Man Channel 001. Listen for the Rain Man digital app or tune in. Just search RM Channel 001. Open Sesame! Open Sesame! Crossing over to other past things in Star Trek. Yeah. What if the Kelvin timeline passed through the original uh, Star Trek like the Mirror Universe? Right. Or the mirror universe crosses over to the Kelvin timeline. I mean, another possibility, Dave, is for very for reasons like this, more stories that can be told. Um, I think Star Trek, with all of the TV shows that already messed up its own continuity, stuff that is canon was just forgotten. Yes, like the Klingon head. Uh, Star dates was a huge thing that they just changed whenever they wanted. From movies to the original series to Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, they weren't even consistent. So there's a lot of issues that was created over the past 50 years of Star Trek. And much like Star Wars had to do, yes, I said the, the, the horrible word to all you Star Trek fans, but even what Star Wars did, in retrospect, you know, it was a good thing what they did. Star Trek from the holodeck. Exclusively on Rain Man Digital. Go to 
RainmanDigitalMedia.com or Patreon.com slash RainmanDigital. End simulation. Energize. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Star Trek Discovery. If you miss any part of this broadcast, you can always find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck. Also, this show is available on our own Rain Man Digital Network app. Just search Rain Man Digital in the iOS store or Google Play Store and take the entire Rain Man Digital Network with you anywhere you go. Whether you're battling Klingons or you're taking a poo, right? Absolutely. You can take this app and listen to all of our shows. We do a wide variety of of different types of content. You got to clear your Jeffrey's tubes. Oh, 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 man. And you're about to clear yours as well, because we're going to get in the Lorca. <laughs> I know you've been fiending for some Lorca. So today we're going to be breaking down, as I was saying at the top of the show, Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Episode 3, Context is for Kings, directed by Akiva Goldsman. Now, Captain Lorca. This week, we were introduced to the captain of the Discovery, Captain Gabriel Lorca, and he's shrouded in a veil of mystery. It would seem that he's pulling the strings of and involved in something potentially dangerous, whether it's ill intent or innocent remains yeah. to be seen. That's the thing is like when he when he revealed his quote quote weapon to uh, Burnham, is that I was a sexual confused. is that a sexual joke? When he revealed his weapon, <laughs> revealed his weapon. Hmm. No, <laughs> what do you, what do you, what do you revealed his plan to Lord uh, to burn him? When he set his phaser to kill, <laughs> it penetrated my inner thighs, <laughs> and I really liked it a lot. <laughs> so stupid. Go ahead, David. <laughs> but I was actually kind of wondering what the power of this uh, this potential weapon that he came up with. Yeah, I'm like going. It doesn't sound that bad. That's why I was like confused why Burnham did you was see, making a big deal about it. Did you see that mangled it. mess of people and well, the, the sister ship? Here's the that thing. That doesn't seem that bad. That doesn't seem that bad when you take <laughs> it in context. Warp. Remember, like transporting accidents happen and they're terrible. Yeah, that's true. That is <laughs> very true. Terrible. You have a great point there. Now, he's definitely not like the other the other captains that came before him. Oh. Setting himself apart from Kirk, Picard, Cisco, and Janeway, Jason Isaacs, Lorca isn't too fond of sitting in the captain's chair. And he opts to stand while occasionally indulging in fortune cookies instead. <laughs> I like that they gave him a quirky trait. Yes, I, I do too. It's it's I like the quirky traits they give our captains. It's something that every single one of them had. Uh, I think my favorite up to this point was probably Captain Cisco with the baseball. With the baseball, yeah. Especially because they always tied back, especially in the earlier part of Deep Space Nine, the earlier seasons, they always found a way to tie back the story of baseball and the themes of baseball into a lot of the story of Deep Space Nine, and it worked really well to help propel Captain Cisco along yeah, well, for the earlier seasons. And this, I think, is going to end up doing the exact same thing for Lorgan. Yeah. Not only does it give him a quirky trait, but it also humanizes him a bit and builds up that character. And I think that's where that was one of the really big strengths of Deep Space Nine was actually being able to humanize Captain Cisco. Yeah. And every time they, they, they harbored on that, on, the, on his 
fascination with baseball, it always seemed to strengthen that character. And I'm with you. I like the fact that they gave Lorca this little quirk because I want to see what they're going to do to actually further on this thing. I like the fact that he said, oh, this was like a uh, a business of my family before, you know, humanity decided to uh, uh, end all hunger. And I, I think it was something he, he said something about ending hunger. And uh, he didn't seem like he was very happy. Yeah, about he it wasn't either. happy about it. And I was like, going, oh, food, food replicators. He basically sounded like he hated food replicators. Yeah. And that's why he keeps the fortune cookies around. Yeah. And I'm like, going, that's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. It gives him that kind of depth. Like it also felt like there's a little bit of disdain for technology and, disdain how, for technology, and how technology yeah. killed a industry that was his family's. Maybe that's going to fuel back into his character later in some way, because he didn't seem very like I said, he didn't seem very happy about the fact that they ended the need for hunger and food. And what did the else did he say? The hunger, food, and I forgot and something else. Something but, else. Yeah. But like the one thing that really kind of puts, pulls it all together is the fact that when you take a look at what Lorca, what his plan is based on, which is the combination of uh, biology and physics as a science. And it goes against everything that is techno uh, technology based. It makes sense that basically he doesn't kind of he harbors like a grudge, like what you said against technology and instead goes goes to try to find this science that's based on biology. Yeah. And that's one of the most exciting elements, I believe, so far of the series was the science mumbo jumbo being brought back into track by way of Lorca's. Yeah, by way of Lorca's alleged resolve, uh, French scientific theories and true science has always been a core element to Star Trek. And it's fun to see it playing a key part of the ongoing serialized story or myth arc of discovery. I feel like it's a return to form. Um, it's something that the J.J. Abrams movies had lost a lot of, not just the philosophical aspect, but also some of the science mumbo jumbo. And that's to be expected. It's something we didn't see a lot, period. And even movies, because movies are a different type of beast um, in TV shows. You can explore those fringe theories and throw out the mumbo jumbo talk and not really piss off viewers because you're talking to Star Trek fans for the most part who enjoy the show and understand and get what they're trying to do. In movies, when you throw out that mumbo jumbo, it doesn't work because movies are written to appeal not just to the elite fans of one fandom, but also the mainstream. In order to get that money and your return on investment, the producers expect a show to kind of connect with mass audiences. So it's something we just haven't had the opportunity to see for the past 12 years and to see them bring it back in such an intense way. And I, I feel like it worked. I mean, it seems like the war is uh, more or less just a writing device used as a narrative backdrop to kind of push the need for extreme scientific testing. And uh, that's why I think that that uh, one of the notes I put in here, the 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 conversation between uh, Stamets and Burnham yep. on the on the away uh, on the away team when she she's confused about the connection between physics and biology, and then Stamets just goes on this techno babble, N nerd rant. rage, nerd yeah. rage. I love this it. nerd rage. Yeah, I love and it. And it, it it it's almost kind of like the the writers are like going, we're bringing back the techno babble of Star Trek, whether you like it or not. Yeah, and just forcing it right in your face. Yep. 
And that's what they that's what they needed to do. And just like what you said, I mean, one of the things the that it's to be expected. And it, if they didn't it, have Star it, Trek. yeah. And if they didn't have it, it would have. You know, I've been on board this show from day one. I'm willing to give everything a shot. And if they wouldn't have included, I'm not opposed to war. I, I feel like it's a natural part of evolution. And if this show is truly about the ever evolving um, human then war is a process and conflict. Yes. And so I understand that it's how they choose to deal with war. So I'm not against war. However, there has to be a smart scientific angle because that is Star Trek. Yes. And that's why when you really break down what they've done now, when you look at the the 90 minute pilot or prologue and you look at what the third episode did and war is more or less the, the vehicle. That's that's helping the story move along. It's the tangible obstacle. But by way of an obstacle, when you have one in terms of writing, various additional obstacles are presented by way of the main situational antagonist when you're writing, which is the war. Now, biological testing. I like this part. It seems to be, according to some sources, I had to Google this because I'm not a scientist. Uh, It seems to be some type of bastardization of the string theory based on the idea that plant spores can be broken down into energy particles that then somehow connect the universe. The universe, yes. Um, Its purpose, as Lorca eventually reveals, is to enable almost instantaneous individual transportation across the galaxy. No more energizing to various places within a limited range. Yes. Basically, you can Did I get that right? Does that sound? Okay. And basically, it's like uh, I, I, when I researched this, I started seeing more call uh, more talk about like the God particle. Oh, how everything is basically made into basically all the all the all the molecules in the air in us and everything. It's all connected, allowing allowing us to actually be able to quote unquote transport without actually seeing it, and that's why when. When uh, Lorca f- showed Burnham the the how the technology is used, it made sense to me because of that techno babble. Yeah, when they threw in the fact that it was like the God particle, where all the molecules are all connected, so in essence, I can travel from here to Mars in a second. Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, physics or like scientists that basically do believe that. Yeah, that it is possible to it's a, it's a way of us teleporting and i the reason why i really appreciate it as well just as a star trek fan and the the usual been there been there done that element i mean what else have we what else can we do and this is something ripped from the pages of fringe science yes and then utilized in star trek obviously we know that whatever this is is either going to be um mothballed because of the dangers or it's going to fail because we don't see this type of technology obviously in star trek regardless to take French science and utilize it and craft into the story makes a lot of sense and makes, makes the story and the scenarios feel more legit. Yes. Uh, Now this being used as the catalyst for what would seem to be the building blocks of this season story, uh, that biological weapon or biological way to transport is definitely the catalyst or the building blocks of this season outside of the war. 
Uh, the veil has not been lifted, so we are still unsure of the true intentions of Lorca or what the true purpose of the biological technology is really about. However, it served its point this episode. We're supposed to feel distrustful of Lorca, much like many of his cast. Yes. Or I'm sorry, many of his crew, I should say. Except for, uh, I keep forgetting the one character's name, his first... Uh, Saru. Saru. Yeah. Lieutenant, or I'm sorry, not Lieutenant, but Commander Saru now. But, like, Saru's number the only one that actually won. Yeah, he's the only one that probably trusts yeah. the captain. Yeah, and that's because he's a by-the-books. He's a soldier. He's a by-the-books. Now, despite all of that, you know, I, I mentioned that we're unclear of Lorca's intentions. And he's kind of there's a big question mark on top of him at this point and it it serves it's multifaceted it serves multiple reasons not only does it create mystique around the story for the audience but also these types of questions bring resentment in terms of story in terms of character interaction these types of questions bring resentment and distrust just to name a few emotions that can surface when these types of things are presented to crew members on a ship. For example, Lieutenant Stamets, played by Anthony Rapp, which, by the way, was I really enjoyed him. I think, I he, did a, I think he did a great job. Um, he is full of vague misgivings about the research and the technology apparently causes a grisly accident that wipes out entire ship's crew of scientists. So obviously he's going to be angry and distrustful of Lorca. Now, this is what I was talking about. Justified discord. Going back to Gene Roddenberry's original intentions for Star Trek, that we have evolved, we live harmonious, nobody fights amongst the crew of Starfleet. And I said, I'm okay with that rule, and I'm okay if it's bent, as long as it's justified discord. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, what did I say? Causation. Causation. Cause and effect. This would make sense. When you have an individual like Lorca put in charge because of war... He's going to ruffle feathers. Oh, yeah. He's going to get people upset, specifically because the true mission of Starfleet is to explore, to seek out new life and new civilizations. They are scientists. They're not soldiers. So when you put someone in that captain seat who's a warmonger, as Lieutenant Stamet said, it's going to create distrust and disharmony in the crew. Cause and effect. There's a reason why there's disharmony. David, they're not disrupting all of Starfleet. This is one ship in a galaxy filled with the Federation. This is one ship, and they're having issues amongst themselves because of this mysterious mission. Cause and effects justifies the bending of Gene Roddenberry's original rule. Exactly. And that's why I was like going, it made sense also with how Throughout the entire episode, Michael Burnham kept actually asking, oh, there's a science vessel. Why does Mar- vessel. Michael Burnham sounds like a football player, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> but like she she constantly was asking, even like Commander Saru, this is, a, this is a science vessel, right? And Saru would stop and say, well, kind of. Right. And you can tell that even for the whole crew, they're not sure what they are. Yeah, they, they're all scientists, but they're all kind of wondering what is our purpose out here why and none of them know their role that's the thing that i found interesting throughout the entire episode 
that no crew member knows their exact role on the ship. Right. Like Stamets, Stamets was like literally that conversation before they go to the USS Grant and Stamets literally gets angry at the captain. And the captain literally smacks him down and says, I know that you lost a loved one on USS Glenn, but there's no time for that. Right. <laughs> right. And, and that whole thing just shows that there's no hierarchy. There's no like, oh, he's the lieutenant. He's the commander. He's the captain. You never speak down to the captain. Stamets literally spoke down to the captain. And, they, and I think it served a great it served as a great message for what's going on in the ship. The fact that nobody trusts Lorca that yeah. this is this is you know they're scientists and it's something that's you know and some people have bitched about this already some trolls and I don't want to get into it because I don't want to bring negativity to my show I want to enjoy Star Trek Discovery right David oh no absolutely however there are some people complaining about the disharmony and the dysfunctional antics of some of the crew members and how this never would have happened and I don't think people People live too much sometimes in, in nostalgia that they forget their own Star Trek, their beloved Star Trek. Oh, absolutely. This this element of Star Trek has been a thing before. Uh-huh. Scientists upset with Starfleet, afraid to take away their scientific experiment because it'll be bastardized into some type of weapon. What what Star Trek movie does that sound like? <laughs> Star Trek 2. Yep. The Wrath of, of Khan. Khan. Let's talk about the Project Genesis. And see, the funny part was, I have that like underlined in my notes as I literally thought in episode three, they were talking about Project oh, Genesis. That would have been awesome. That would have been so awesome. That, because that would have been cool. I was though. like going, I'm like going, okay, wait a minute. They're doing biology. Uh, they're doing biology. They're talking about terraforming. Are they talking about Genesis? Maybe the very beginning of, <laughs> of the Genesis. Gen- yeah, dude. That and would I'm be- like going. Oh my god, I just had goosebumps when I was I just got goosebumps. It. I didn't even think about it. If until it's like now. the beginnings of Genesis. Yeah, that would have been kind of cool too. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the Project Genesis from Star Trek 2, just as a as a rebuttal to some of the trolls out there, the misgivings that Carol Marcus and her team had about Starfleet. They hated Captain Kirk, hated Starfleet <laughs> because I mean, even his own son even hated his own him. Son hated him. <laughs> because he did not like Starfleet. Because they were afraid they would take their their baby and turn it into some weapon of evil. So this is not a new idea. This is Star Trek. This has been done. So, I mean, you can have everything you want in Star Trek. You can have that harmony, that socialistic harmony that Gene Roddenberry created, which I felt works and still works. However, there's always going to be one or two bad apples, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just because you created a utopian society and we've evolved doesn't mean there's going to be one motherfucker that likes to fuck things up, right? Yeah, there's there's always going to be a con. There's, al- there's always evil, right? There's always evil. Yeah. And that's always been proven in, in, in Star Trek down to the original series when they did the episodes of, uh, I think, uh, the one where you see all the evil version of uh or captain kirk gets separated into two his two personalities yeah mirror the mirror universe right no not the mirror universe it's oh the one that yeah basically yes, got, yes. i know what you're talking about yeah he he got separated into his two uh separate personalities in a in a transporter accident and like one was pure evil the other one was good yeah but the, the there was like positives of his evil side where he was he was 
confident in himself. It's all of his captain uh, captain knowledge and stuff like that. Yeah. But his weak side is his humanity and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. It's always been there. Always. That's why that's why I always get confused why Star Trek fans, every time I go on a forum, they always say, oh, this isn't like Star Trek where everything was all peaceful and everything. I'm like, going, have you guys forgotten Voyager started off with two opposing sides being forced on one ship? And still, I mean, the ramifications of the Maquis hybrid crew with the Federation or, or Starfleet, it was a thing for at least what, the first two seasons. It created discord amongst the the crew, and it, it was and, and it was throughout the entire the entire series. You would always get that one episode where the Maquis crew would kind of like stage a mutiny. Over. Yeah, I mean, wasn't Tom Paris Starfleet, and he was sent to jail for breaking rules and becoming the Maquis? Yep. So there's your precious Starfleet. Your precious Starfleet still churned out mutineers. Who became terrorists and then later became the crew of the Voyager. So this is nothing new. It's nothing you you new. have to allow your shows to evolve. Otherwise, we will never be able to tell stories that are realistic base. Or now, you have to take off the nostalgic glasses also. Yeah. Because like you you're you're remembering the good times that you really enjoyed, but you're forgetting the stories that basically were there. Exactly. David, thank you for saying that. It's true. But this does take us to Lorca and Section 31. If it is indeed Section 31, and I'm inclined to say that this is Section 31, that Lorca is in fact part of the secret group known as Section 31, it would make sense. When you have a unit, when you're dealing with a top secret mission, right, that involves science and a potential weapon, correct? Yep. Why would you, in a, in a, in a world of 50 years of canon, why would you create something new, a new idea? It wouldn't make any sense. You I'm not talking about stories. You always want new ideas and new characters. But in terms of that dictionary, you have 50 years of technology, characters, species, planets, things that's only been barely touched on. Why would you not go in that box and say this is something that we've used and fans have really connected with it? Let's go to use it. It would make sense. So I'm leaning on the fa- I'm I'm leaning to the idea that it is in fact section 31. Now if you're not a Star Trek nut job like a lot of us are, uh, you probably wouldn't have any idea or any clues as to what he's up to. But I feel like it's safe to say that he is involved in some way with this secret organization known as Section 31. Yeah. Now, Section 31 has a bit of a history. Uh, old and fairly new. And fairly new. Certain members of the USS Discovery crew are seen to be wearing black Starfleet badges. Could this be a clue of the infamous black-suited Section 31? Now, they were first introduced in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and also seen in Star Trek Enterprise and the 2013 movie Star Trek Into Darkness. Section 31 is an officially non-existent, autonomous intelligence and defense organization. Basically, they're the CIA-Pentagon hybrid. They're they're wet works. Yes. And basically, it spends its time ruthlessly bending the rules and doing dark stuff outside the usual purview of Starfleet to get the job done. Now, that's a definition from the official Star Trek wiki canon. Yep. Now, when you hear that official description, does that not sound exactly 
like how Lorca was explained? Absolutely. I mean, Lorca is. I'm willing when you to saw do, him. I'm willing to do whatever to get the job done. Job done. And that is a Section 31 agent. Yep. I mean, the the best one by far, I remember those episodes in Deep Space Nine when Section 31 would show up. And literally anyone who has a Federation uniform automatically distrusts them. Yeah. Even though they're on, they're on the same side. You got to remember, most people don't even know that they exist. That's why no one understands. Oh, we've never seen a black Starfleet badge. Most people don't know of the existence but they're talking, of Section they're 31. They're talking in like, I, I, I used to remember in Deep Space Nine when Odo would run it, run into him. Yeah. He'd always talk to them like they're they're like a hush-hush. They're a whisper. Right. He never talks about them in the open. It's almost kind of like that. The boogeyman. The boogeyman of the separ- of Federation was Section 31. If they showed up on your doorstep, Bad, bad stuff was going to happen. They're spooks. They're they're the CIA yeah. of, of of this Star Trek world. So I think it's easy to surmise that the USS Discovery secretive off the books mission statement is definitely in line or in sync with Section 31's ideology. It would make a lot of sense. Now, in an interview with TV Guide, there was a. Interesting little bit of information that was released uh, when Jason Isaacs did an interview with TV Guide. It says, why does Lorca have a room full of animals? And this also kind of lends credence to our Section 31 theory, okay? Just because of the dark nature of Lorca. And in the interview, this is his response. We're losing this war, and I've been given license to do whatever the hell is necessary to try and see if I can in any way shift the odds. And so I have in my private study area anything I want, including weapons, gases, poisons, and creatures. Anything that, if examined correctly, might give us an edge because we need something to turn the tide in the war. And that's why someone like me... Isaac says, has been given the ship and given license to go off and, not under the glare of anyone else's spotlight, see if I can come up with a solution, any kind of creative solutions to this problem of imminent destruction, cause and effect. If that doesn't spell Section 31 agent, I don't know what does. <laughs> and and the cause and effect idea I keep throwing out there about ju- justifying. Yeah justifying discord disharmony and war needless to say it looks like war will be the tangible antagonist david as i was saying earlier but the true trials and tribulations will be the fundamental tension of starfleet's stated mission of exploration and its military side that's going to be outside of of course burnham and her being the vehicle for the audience's eyes and ears into this new world that's going to be the problem of the show. It's going to be the trials and tribulations between the fundamental tension of Starfleet's stated mission that we all love, seek out new life, not war, and the exploration of its military side. Yes. This is a story worth exploring, I believe. And it's a great way to take Burnham's prologue from last week and mix it with the aftermath of those events and what is now the story of Discovery. 
Now, Dave, nothing has changed from last week. I still believe the hook of the series is about Burnham. It is. She is the vehicle in which we will explore all the mysteries that the USS Discovery has to offer. The questions of humanity, morality, ethics will be challenged for her as she struggles to discover who she is and learn more about humanity. Uh, the use of the Alice in Wonderland, as you were talking about earlier in the show, and it's homage to the original series was cool. Utilizing a familiar theme such as being of two worlds, as you said, yes. and poetically crafting it with one of the most metaphorical stories of academic literature, which is Alice in Wonderland, a girl trapped in a world she does not understand or things are not as they seem. How effing Star Trek is that? That is. That's why people need to give this show a shot, because rather rather than bitching and moaning, complaining, watch what's in front of you and don't just watch it, analyze it because it's fucking there. And it's fun to analyze it. That's the thing. That's the one aspect of Star Trek that I was hoping that Discovery would have. Yeah. Is other TV shows are more or less kind of like popcorn flicks where they basically I don't have to think about it. Star Trek, though, is one of those shows that I always love sitting down and analyzing what they're doing. Absolutely. And not, that's not, the whole Not point. all shows do that. But Star Trek, by, by design from 50 years ago, that's what Star Trek was. It was a show to reflect a bit. I'm not saying Roddenberry was all about getting on a soapbox and preaching, but there was an ideology that went with Star Trek. Yeah, and like uh, an example of like of what uh, when I think about this is like when I was originally watching Star Trek, uh, rewatching it for our show, I was watching it one day and basically my girlfriend was actually saying that. Oh, damn. Why? Uh, she was saying, why do you have to sit constantly at the TV as if you're like reading a book? Because I am. And can't you I just am like it. I am. Can't you have it playing in the background because you've seen this so many times? And I'm like going, no, you don't understand. Star Trek is the only one that I, you have to pay attention because you do all the details that are in there. Tell a wider story. Oh, yeah. And. This, I broke it down. I showed her that basically you watch the pilot episode of the original series to the end of Star Trek Next Generation. Every single episode, there's a point to a character's actions. Yeah. Every every character's actions matter. Yes. N nothing is throwaway. Nothing is throwaway. At, at least so far, specifically in the show we're discussing, obviously, Discovery. I think so far, all the moving parts are there for a reason. They're there for a reason. And like the whole uh, Michael Burnham, the, when I was wa watching that every single little thing she did helped propel her character story that much more. Yeah. And do it. Yeah. It seems silly to actually be saying a story while you're being chased by a monster. Yeah. But in actuality, a lot of people do things to get stress level down. They think about things. They talk to themselves and they have sex. They whack it. They whack it. Yeah. <laughs> Vigorously. You know, you do whatever it takes to get you through that. Whatever that, you have to do to get those to Jeffrey's tubes empty, right? Exactly. <laughs> whatever you have to do to get the, the uh, torpedo solution ready and for <laughs> <laughs> ready to fire. <laughs> All right. Now, this David is worthy of discussion as well. We're almost done here. The, and that is the trifecta of brilliance. <laughs> okay. And that is three voices that I I'm calling it now. It's already there, but I guarantee you it's going to continue at least through the first season. And this is Brian Fuller 
all over the place. Okay. The voice of reason, philosophy, and conscience. Saru, Sarek, and Georgiou. That's the trifecta of brilliance. It's a great way for our character, Burnham, to continue to explore, grow, and discover who she is. Now, the more obvious Star Trek character known as Saru is everything we've come to expect from previous installments of Trek. Yes. His character is entirely fascinating, uh, serves as a warning or omen. The evolved character who's observing and watching. He's the harbinger of warning. The very nature of his species, as he said in the first episode, is what? They were created, right? Yes. To sense the coming of death. He's the harbinger of warning. He is that sounding horn. And that's why that's why that one uh, scene, because I have it here in my notes, the one scene where Saru is just sitting there and you see him start having like, I guess you could say that's his warning. Like you see the little tendrils on the back of his neck start elevating and everything else. And he, he kind of sits up and has this weird fear look on his face. Yeah. When he sees yeah. the ship. Go with the prisoners, but Burnham's still on this on the ship. And he doesn't know, but he knows something. He knows something. Yeah, I love it. He is a perfect addition to Star Trek in a more subtle way. Rather than being in your face, hey, I'm a character of the crew. I have this type of problems. I have these issues. He is that more subtle, symbolic character that will serve as the voice of reason for Burnham. Yes. And then we have the second part of this trifecta. Sarek, the philosophical element, as we said last week, he poses the questions that are integral to understanding and developing a character, which is also connected to Burnham. When I mentioned the trifecta of brilliance, I'm relating to the three characters that are there to build Burnham. Yes. Now, Georgiou is the third part of the trifecta of brilliance. She's the somber reminder of a mistake that will keep Burnham on the right path. That will be by the end of the season. This will not go away. The weight of her death will continue to help Burnham make the right decisions. She's not going to go away. I, I almost guarantee we're going to see her in flashbacks as well. Additional story elements. There's going to be more to her story. We're going to see more of that development between the two of them. Oh, absolutely. And you see her influence, too, in the final, in that final scene between uh, Burnham and Lorca. Yeah. When she's telling Lorca why she can't join his crew. Yeah. This is the reason. And all the reasons she gave was all the teachings that Georgiou gave her. Yeah. So we know that her influence on It'll Burnham be felt. is very, very heavy. Yeah. And this is the type of writing that is that is truly ingenious. And it's something you don't see all the time in TV when you have built in characters, not just to help our character get from A to B to C to D, but to help us as an audience understand our lead character. And sometimes in order to understand our lead character, it doesn't mean we just sit back and watch that person interact. It's how other people react and interact with her. Yes. Through their parallel narratives, their character development, we're going to learn about Burnham. 
And that to me is Brian Fuller esque to the max. That is what he does in his shows. He always builds that one solid character and he has two or three additional characters that are true supporting cast and the very de- by the very definition supporting. They're there to help that character grow and help the audience learn about that person even more. Yeah. Now, the lighter side of Trek, which I'm glad we had this and she actually was one of my favorite moments as well, was Mary Weissman, Sylvia yes. Tilly. Tilly. She was sprinkled throughout the episode whenever it needed to keep the story from going too dark into dark brooding tones. They allowed the character Sylvia Tilly to really shine and she was quirky. She was funny. Uh, she was charming. She was appealing. She was the lighter side of Trek. Yeah, she is what basically all Trek fans that have those nostalgic glasses on gravitate towards. Yeah, she was fun, too. She was fun, and she is a, a balance to the story. When you're dealing with so many dark themes and a very dark character like Burnham and what she's living with currently in the, sh- in the show, you need to have that balance. Otherwise, we have a very dark, dark show, which I don't have a problem with. But at the same time, we got to remember the lighter side of Trek as well. To be truly faithful to Star Trek, you got to remind us of the bright hope that the Federation and Starfleet lends to the people of the galaxy. And that's cadet Sylvia Tilly. Yeah. And that's what Tilly, that's why I really liked. They didn't go overboard with making Tilly look naive. No, they basically just showed Tilly as she's that, she's that Federation officer that always is looking towards the stars. It's, it's something that it, it, that saying has always been in Star Trek. With all characters of Star Trek, they're characters that constantly look up to the stars. She's Podunk. Yeah, well, <laughs> oh, no, she's not. She's not Podunk like like <laughs> like Archer. Like Archer. Oh, we! I, I was so enterprise. happy, dude, when they introduced Tilly, and I'm like, "Don't be Archer. Please don't be Archer. <laughs> don't be Archer." But no, oh. but like Tilly, Tilly is the perfect. Uh, this episode that was the perfect mix of someone that basically constantly looks up to the stars. She's the embodiment of Gene Roddenberry's vision yeah. of a Starfleet officer. And and it's done hope. well. Full of hope. Full of hope. Yeah. And it's not overdone, it's not too sugar sugar coated. It was done enough to actually not just help elevate her character, but it was used brilliantly in the episode to elevate Burnham. Yeah. I agree. Now, the way the episode ended, in conclusion, was near perfect and a testament to Jason Isaac as, uh, as an actor. The fortune cookie element, as you brought up, was a great addition. Nuances like this add life to a character. They were in his family business hundreds of years ago. Also, the metaphor for the future and Burnham paving her own path and not accepting someone's uh, inter- interpretation of her future... And she makes her own decisions by rejecting the fortune cookie uh, to end it with it with a Shakespearean esque line of dialogue as well. Justify the actions of Burnham as and as a necessity of context. Let me rephrase this. I'm not I'm not saying it as good as I want the way the show ended. It ended in a very Shakespearean esque way. They justified the actions of Burnham. As a necessity of context, a great way to sum up Lorca's ideology, his own personal politics, and how he views Burnham's actions as A-OK, 
because your logic deemed it necessary and you made the right decision because it's all about context and context is for kings. You belong with me in a leadership role. You're the kind of person I need. That kind of person that doesn't listen to rules, you look at the context. You're not reading from a textbook saying, well, Starfleet Regulation 1-2 says I can't do this, this, and this. However, look at what's in front of me. Uh, the Starfleet Regulations isn't going to get us out of this. It reminds yeah. me of what Kirk did when he, you know... Rigged the uh, Cor- what the Kobayashi Maru is that you yeah, say the it? Kobayashi Maru test. I, he did the exact same thing. You you need to break the rules sometimes in order to get the win. Get now the win. some people may view that as unethical, but some people save worlds and galaxies like Captain Kirk by doing that. Yeah, <laughs> so. and that's what I like about it is like that you bring up a, a really great point that great moments in Star Trek are always connected to Shakespearean methodology yep and when they when they ended it on on that note yeah. i'm like going okay they understand what makes star trek yep i so yep. I believe in this crew that's that's behind that's behind the production of star trek now because they get it yeah the stuff that made star trek great was all the all the literature cre- connections never forgetting about like literature of the past they brought up alice in wonderland yep they bring up Shakespearean mythology. And these are all building blocks of Star Trek. And that's that's what makes Star Trek great. Look at Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Khan himself, what does he what does he make what does he allude to? Moby Dick, another great uh, liter, uh literature masterpiece. Or or even like in the points in uh Admiral. Admiral. <laughs> <laughs> or even like in the points with Picard. Picard with the Borg. Yeah. That whole scene in First Contact when he shatters the the ships in the in the, his ready room. Oh yeah, love it. Oh dude, that was that's some passionate acting. And yeah. that's classic Shakespearean mythology at its yeah. greatest. Yeah. Yep. And that episode or movie was filled with disharmony. Absolutely. Uh, so I mean, I don't need to break it down for you, but I'm sure people remember in first contact first contact what happened. I mean, Worf threatened to murder Picard. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, he said, "If you weren't the person that I was, you'd be dead where I'd you are. Right kill now. you where you stand. I kill you where you stand." Yeah. Well, David, let's end this discussion this week with a little bit of final thoughts. Let's start with you. Give My me final your final thoughts, thoughts in in about thirty seconds or less. My final thoughts on Discovery. This episode was really strong. I have to agree with a lot of consensus that basically it's the better of the first three episodes because it introduces us to what Discovery is going to be about. Lorca, the ship, Burnham, everything. So this episode pretty much encapsulates what we need to know about the series. Uh, secondly, I think the cast is fantastic. Uh, there is not a weak cast member on this cast. Like, down to the the science officer that she that uh there's no Wesley Crusher here. There's no Wesley Crusher in this one. But like down to even like the the security chief. Sorry, Will. The security chief in the on Discovery, she's actually kind of interesting. The fact that she kind of like oh, bad mouse Vulcan uh Vulcan uh martial arts right to Burnham's yeah. face. He can be evil to me too. She's hot. <laughs> And I'm like, she's the chick from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. And even down to her, she didn't say a lot in the episode, but her character carried a lot of weight. Yeah, she was cool. She was cool. 
So and overall, she's definitely section 31 as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I love the I love the love the designs of everything. I like the I actually really dig the uniforms that they chose. I do like the the black emblem. When I saw that black emblem communicator, dude, I want to get a back black emblem communicator now for my my collection. And overall, I still I'm I'm really psyched to see episode four. I'm still on this series. I still and for episode, I give it an A. Yeah. All right. Um, I also say this is definitely the better of the last three episodes. The episode, uh, the first two episodes, which uh, definitely served the prologue. And I think ultimately it was a great decision, as I was saying, by the producers to kind of give us more of a solid background on our character before moving us to the USS Discovery, where, of course, the rest of the show will be taking place. It was a great idea because now by episode three, we're in it. We understand the idea of the of the story, the direction they're taking. Uh, one only has to want to look to see that these producers and writers are paying full on homage to Gene Roddenberry in almost every way. They're not breaking rules. They're bending them slightly, but it's by way of causation, which in writing is a OK. It makes way for some great storytelling. Uh, I love the symbolism and the typical Star Trek metaphors. Just amazing. I give this episode an A plus. An A plus. That's a that's a strong grade, Dave. That's a strong logical grade. Yeah. So I want to thank everybody for listening to this discussion of Star Trek Discovery on episode three. Context is for Kings. And if you want to hear more of Star Trek Discovery Edition, please find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Just search Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. Add us to your favorites. Leave us reviews. Also, we want to hear your thoughts. Tweet us at from the Holodeck, or you can tweet me on my personal Twitter account at Michael underscore Flores. Let us know how you're enjoying the show. Also on Facebook, Facebook.com slash from the Holodeck. Let us know. If you're enjoying Star Trek Discovery and our discussion, and if you want to add to things, please leave us comments and we will talk about them and discuss them on the show. If you have opposing views, we are open to that. We're not dictator hosts, David. Right? We're not Section 31 yet. No, we're not Section 31. We are a democratic Star Trek show, right? So we do want to hear other thoughts. If you have thoughts that are non-trolly, we don't like trolls. I will never make room for trolls. <laughs> um, if you have opposing thoughts or additional ideas, please let us know. I want to hear them and we will discuss them. Thank you, David. Thank you. Let's live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.